Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jane Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Dr. Morgan Pitaka, a professor of Japanese history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His recently um, co-edited volume with Leiko Tanimura and Takashi Masuda, titled Letters from Japan's 16th and 17th Centuries, Correspondence of Warlords, Tea Masters, Zen Priests, and Aristocrats. It was published this year through the Institute of East Asian Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. This volume introduces letters from early modern Japan from various social groups with an introduction, translation, and commentary for each letter. Welcome, Morgan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Now, uh, before we talk about the book and the beautiful letters, what do you teach and research about? Uh, I'm a historian of Japan, and I focus on the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, Within that period, I usually focus on material culture, on the histories that revolve around objects and things. Um, A lot of my work is secretly about ceramics, actually, but uh, I've I've written about um, uh, the tea ceremony, samurai, cities, uh, and now I'm working on environmental history. But through all of those themes, I'm interested really in material culture, and um, that, that's I'm also very lucky to get to teach those topics. So I teach surveys in uh, ancient, medieval, and early modern Japanese history, and graduate courses in uh, a whole range of topics in Asian studies. Wonderful. I absolutely loved your first book, which was also featured a couple years ago on our channel. So uh, if anyone's interested, make sure to check that out. Uh, So what brought you and the other two um, co-authors together to work on this volume? Uh, Well, when I was writing my dissertation, um, I lived in Kyoto and then I moved from Kyoto to London. 
Uh, and in London, I got to know uh, Tani Muradeko, uh, who's a cultural historian of Japan who focuses on the history of tea uh, and more recently has also done research on the history of women uh, and the history of early modern manuscripts. Um, she was living in London at the time and uh, working on um, uh, Iinowski, the the famous late Tokugawa politician, who also was an extremely important tea master and tea author. Uh, and we became friends. And then uh, many, many years later, she was teaching back in Tokyo, uh, and we uh, stayed in touch and often talked about how much we loved reading the letters that tea practitioners wrote to each other, uh, but also that tea practitioners sometimes uh, treasured as objects, uh, you know, would, would keep as hanging scrolls and show in the tea gathering. Uh, and we um, explored the idea of uh, uh, translating letters together. Um, we had actually collaborated on an essay in the, the first book I ever published, which was an edited anthology called Japanese Tea Culture. She had an essay in that volume that we worked on together, and we liked working with each other. Um, she knew uh, Masuda Takashi, the, the third co-editor or co-author, who is a very eminent scholar of calligraphy and letters and Japanese history. And um, the three of us got together and talked about the project and agreed on some basic um, goals, uh, principles. And then um, Reiko and I mostly, you know, we did most, we did the translations uh, collaboratively, uh, wrote the essays collaboratively, and then um, she was, you know, more responsible for checking the Japanese with Masada Sensei, and I was more responsible for working on the English and um, trying to make the book be clean and readable and useful for. Uh, English language readers. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a, a labor of many years uh, and a real joy to see in print. Wonderful. I can't wait to ask more about the, the, the sources, the letters that you included in the book. But I believe you have another book that was recently published that will also be featured on our channel. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I have a, a monograph that uh, I've been working on for many years, which is called Reading Medieval Ruins, which is about the city of Ichijo Dani, which was the headquarters of the Asakura family of warlords who ruled Echizen province in the 16th century. Um, and that book is about the city and the, the, what it was like to live in the city, and then also why the city was completely destroyed in the 1570s and how we know about it. What, what kind of evidence is there that we can use to study a city that was really wiped off the face of the earth? Intriguing, I can't wait to read the book and listen to the, the interview. Um, now this volume um, that we're talking about today, it mostly features letters. So what time periods are these letters from? And um, even though it's kind of indicating the title, but who were they written by and to? Yeah. So this is there all these letters are from the period that I love, which is um actually a period that is difficult to name. Um it's the period of transition from medieval to early modern. Uh so some people might call the late 16th century the late medieval period. Um you might call it the Sengoku period or the age of warring states. Um 
or you might call it the age of unification or the Azuchi Momoyama period, right? There's so many different names for that moment. And one of the reasons for that is that it's a time of tremendous political and cultural change. And there are a lot of different ways that as historians looking backwards, we can sort of slice and dice that period uh, to, to try to explain why it's significant. Um, but it also includes the 17th century, which usually we would categorize as the early Edo period or the beginning of the early modern period. Um, I, I'm not that interested in periodization. I don't think arguments about when a period begins or ends are that interesting, but I am really interested in this moment when Japan transitions from being a society at war, a society where there's a lot of um, communities that are living precariously, that are um, uh, at risk of, of destruction, as happened to the people who lived in Ichijodani, um, and then gradually political stability through military conquest leads to uh, a society that is ostensibly at peace, right? And it's at peace under the threat of violence and under the brutal rule of, of samurai overlords. But that transition is very interesting to me. And so these letters, uh, which really range from uh, the... I'm trying to remember the exact dates, roughly the 1570s to the, to the middle of the 17th century, punctuate this period of social, political, cultural transformation. That's very um, interesting. Sorry, sorry. I, yeah. the, second, the second part of your question, um, uh, the whole question of why people write letters and, and, and what the function of letters is, is maybe something we can get into a little bit later. But most of these letters are written by elites. Um, of course, elites are, are on the whole more highly educated in this period of transition. Later during the Tokugawa period, we see more uh, urban commoners and even some rural commoners uh, gaining literacy, um, writing letters, leaving behind diaries and other records. But in this period of you know, war and uh, massive political change, by and large, it tends to be the wealthy and the powerful who are literate enough to regularly exchange letters. And so we have letters by aristocrats, letters by daimyo, the powerful warlords who um, were incredibly influential during this period. We have letters by tea masters, by uh, Buddhist priests. Um, and fortunately, we also have letters by women. Uh, a lot of uh, the documentary record in pre-modern Japan marginalizes women and um, their voices are there if you look for them. And there are many documents written by women, of course, that historians have paid attention to and many more that, that need to be paid attention to. And one of the categories of sources, uh, you know, from which we can learn more about the lives of women, I think is the, the personal letters, uh, especially among warrior families and aristocratic families um, where, you know, women's, fundamental uh, place as uh, the masters of the home and the masters of the family, and often also as masters of, of the profession, the occupation of the family, um, is revealed. So uh, <laughs> this might be uh, one of the questions that I'm most curious about. How did you get these letters? How did you select them? What was your criteria? And yeah, how did you, how did you find them? 
Yeah. Well, there's so many wonderful collections of letters in Japan, in Japanese. Um, there is a, almost a kind of industry of, which I'm very thankful for. I don't, I don't call it an industry in a demeaning way, um, but there's a sort of an industry of writing books about how to read primary sources in Japanese, um, how to understand the past through uh, looking at documents uh, sometimes they teach you how to look at an original handwritten document. Other times they give you the uh, transcribed modern textual version, right? The Katsuji version, or even the version in modern Japanese. All of those materials are wonderful. Um, and in you know one of the fields that I have done a lot of research, uh, the history of the tea ceremony in particular, there are many guides and many collections of historical materials because one of the fundamental skills you need to have to be an active tea practitioner is, you know, when you enter the tea room or the tea hut, you turn to the tokonoma, the decorative alcove, and you're confronted by a kakemono, a hanging scroll. And sometimes the hanging scroll is a painting. It might have an image of Bodhidharma or something, but often it is a work of calligraphy. Sometimes it's even a letter. And so being able to kind of take a stab at, at reading it or at saying, oh, I think, I think this letter mentions the cherry blossoms, you know, or to, to kind of, or, oh, I recognize this is a, a four character phrase from Zen Buddhism or something like that is a mark of your, engagement with tea culture, your sophistication, your, your education. Uh, and a lot of tea practitioners really devote themselves to trying to do this difficult task of reading these documents. So um, uh, Reiko is uh, also a historian of, of tea culture. And Tanimura, uh, not Tanimura, um, Masura-sensei also, uh, you know, in his work on the history of letters, the history of calligraphy, uh, has been deeply involved in the history of the tea ceremony. So I think in some ways our interest in this culture of letter writing and in um, the particular letters we ended up selecting came from our focus on tea culture. Um, I, I actually think the tea ceremony is a kind of, it's almost like an engine of history. You know, it sort of, it generates meaning, it generates uh, documents and objects. It's a, it's a tremendous repository for studying culture in the past. And so we looked to collections of letters. Um, some of these letters previously have appeared in Masada Takashi's uh, studies of calligraphy and of letters. Um, and in fact, a number of them are uh, objects that he collected. Uh, and so one of the ways... Uh, one of the means by which we were able to get all these wonderful images of the originals was through the owners. Um, in, in some cases, um, Masada-sensei, and in other cases, people who he knows. Uh, one, of them, one of the letters is in the Tokyo National Museum. So that sort of network of, of tea practitioners and tea historians, I think, was really key for us in putting this volume together. Fascinating. And I really love that in the book, um, in the beginning, uh, in the several introductions, there is this beautiful um, um, kind of introduction or explanation of the history of letter writing in Japan. 
So for our listeners who might not be familiar with this topic,、uh, you just mentioned letters among tea masters and them being letters being written by、uh, mostly elites, and that nowadays they're perceived to、uh, have this close connection with calligraphy. So, what are some、um, important facts about writing, receiving, and I suppose preserving letters in medieval Japan, so that we get to see these beautiful letters nowadays? Yeah. So, well, letters were, of course,、um, originally written in huge abundance and in a kind of startling variety, and we only have access to a tiny fraction of what was. You know, produced in the 16th and 17th century.、Um, you know,、uh, people would write letters for all kinds of reasons. Some letters are written as official government documents, right? So letters that have the red seal of、uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi or the Shogun. You know, these are these are edicts essentially. They're they're、uh, official political proclamations. But then there are also private letters. That are sent between family members, between friends,、um, and uh, I, in Japan, there's quite a lot of attention paid to distinguishing between different types of letters. I'm a little looser. I just like to read all the letters that I can find,、um, and I first started、uh, reading letters in in my、um, first research project, which was a study of the Raku family of potters. And their relationship with the Sen family of tea practitioners and tea masters,、uh, which resulted in the book *Handmade Culture*. And in that in that research, I read a lot of letters written between various cultural luminaries and the Raku family, and between members of the Raku family and the Sen tea master family.、Um, and those letters were were、um, hard to interpret, hard to understand, but also not that voluminous. Now, in my second research project,、uh, excuse me, which was a history of how warriors used material culture in politics,、um, spectacular accumulation, which you referenced earlier, I had to read, or at least look at and understand, almost four thousand letters、um, by Tokugawa Ieyasu、um, or members of his family,、uh, and that was that was challenging because. He was not a very gifted writer, and he was not someone who poured his subjectivity into his writing. So his letters almost all are cold and bureaucratic, and they focus only on the facts.、Um, and so that's one thing that prompted elites to write letters: is、um, verification of relationships,、um, statements of intent. Questions about plans, you know.、Um, one of the one of the really interesting instances of letter writing in the history of Tokugawa Ieyasu is that in the the months before the Battle of Sekigahara in 1600, which many think is one of the most important、um, conflicts in Japanese history, Ieyasu was writing dozens of letters a day, and what he was doing was preparing for war. Uh, so, so the relationship between letter writing and military activity, for some, for example, is a really understudied aspect of the political history of pre-modern Japan. But you also have these wonderful letters where a mother is checking up on her son and saying, "Have you been eating? I'm worried."、Uh, or where 
uh, two friends will say, I can't wait to see you at the tea gathering. I have a tea bowl I want to show you. I'm really excited to go to this tea hut. I've never been there before. Um, so these letters uh, are written for a, a whole range of reasons. Um, but I did want to also get to the, the question of preservation because I think that's one of the most important points. These letters often, I think, do reveal certain truths to us. But we always have to remember that especially for the elites who are the primary you know, authors of the letters in this book, we have these letters today because the calligraphy is beautiful, the people are famous and influential, and the owners of the letters have made the decision to mount them as hanging scrolls and display them in you know, a, a tea gathering or some other kind of, you know, a banquet or something like that. So they have become museum pieces in a sense, right? They have been edited out of the historical record in an entirely unnatural way that represents the agency and the cultural vision of the collectors of the letters. But it does not show us the worldview or the range of activities of the authors. So we only can use these letters very carefully because let's say, uh, you know, Takeda Shingen wrote 10,000 letters in his career. We have ended up with a few hundred and we have to ask why these letters, why not other letters? Why was it worth preserving these? What did it do for the owner? Um, and what might those letters that we don't have anymore have said? Um, documents in which you brag about how many people you killed on the battlefield, those tend not to be preserved because you don't want to read that in the tea gathering. Uh, so we always need to think about the motivations of um, those who collected, preserved, mounted, and displayed letters as works of calligraphy. That is such a great point. I'm so glad you brought it up. Um... In my, in my own work, I, I deal with these letters and diaries by a person, by a fiction writer in the late Tokugawa period called Kyokite Baking. He wrote a lot of diaries. And very often we see in, um, in, in, in literary studies, I think mostly, when we talk about this uh, difference um, between genres, we consider um, fiction to be more of these imagined, uh, to be based on imagination, whereas letters and diaries to be reflections of the person's true feelings or real thoughts. But in the cases of like these letters that were selectively preserved, or in the cases of Baking, who, who wrote letters and diaries that talked, well, he, he's, he would say really mean things about other writers, his time because they were competitors. Um, it's it's really difficult to um, let's say um, well to to to, to use a very um, inaccurate inaccurate word here objectivity. Um, it's not that um, because these materials are letters they are completely objective. Absolutely. Yes, I'm really glad. Yeah, your your the, the the book is mentioning this. Now, um, all the letters in this volume are provided with a copy of the original document, um, transcription, translation, and very careful 
commentary. Now, when, when we look at these letters, some look like they were written in drastically different styles. Um, some, you know, some, some look like they're beautiful calligraphy pieces. Some look completely unrecognizable to me. So can you tell us a bit about the format, styles, and um, fonts of medieval Japanese letters? Sure. Um, I mean, well, yes and no. I'm not a. I'm. I'm not actually an expert in calligraphy, and um, I definitely rely very heavily on my kuzushiji jiten when I'm, uh, you know, when I'm reading these uh, these types of materials, looking up every broken character, trying to figure out, you know, is it this stroke or that stroke? Um, the the whole culture of writing in a very abbreviated way in the kind of grass script of, of medieval and early modern Japan um, is a fascinating aspect of elite culture. Um, so sometimes an author who was self-aware um, of his or her reputation as a, a, a calligrapher would put brush to paper very deliberately. And I think sort of self-consciously thinking you know, my a, a little bit like someone like the poet Basho would would write a poem, knowing that that becomes a kind of treasure, right? You're leaving a gift in a sense. I think some some of the uh, letter authors in this book who were famed for their calligraphy um, had that kind of awareness, and on some occasions would very deliberately craft, you know, the letter to be visually beautiful, as well as to convey meaning and content. But other times these authors were writing in a hurry. Um, and one of the things that's so fun, I think about the content of these letters is that you, you can feel time passing, right? You, when, you, when you read the letters, you can feel, um, the, the letter authors will say things like, I heard that you were ill recently, so I'm sending you this medicine. Right, so you can feel the passage of time of two people who live apart, and news travels from one to the other through friends, through um, pages who are sent in person, or through letters that are delivered by hand. Uh, and then that person reacts and says, "I want to help, so I'm going to send this medicine back, and I'm going to send this quick letter that I've hastily scribbled on this piece of paper and folded to go with the messenger and with the medicine." Um, I feel like you can feel some of that urgency in some of these letters. Uh, and I, I think that's part of what makes them very powerful, but it also means that the variety of uh, brushwork uh, is sort of startling. Um, the, the, the letters that are the most consistent, I guess I would say, are those written by the most elite uh members of, of this anthology. So um, the Empress Tolf Gumonin, uh, for example, or um, the, the warrior uh, and tea master and garden designer, Kobori Enshu, um, the, uh, the letters that are written by uh, the two members of the Konoi family in this volume. You know, these, these types of materials your your hand, you know, your brush, your brushwork is a representation of who you are. 
And those types of authors tended to take a lot of care, although even they sometimes were in a hurry. Um, and, and that's something that Masada Sensei talks about in his essay, his musings on letters essay. He talks about how, for him, one of the sources of his passion in the study of letters is the belief that the historical persona, the person, inheres in the calligraphy itself. You're not so so almost in a spiritual way, you know, almost in, in the sense, you know, in Hinduism, there's this idea called darshan, which is that a representation of a deity isn't just a representation, the deity is activated in the deity, in the statue, excuse me, and the statue looks at you, the worshiper. I feel like some of the most devoted students of calligraphy and of letters approach letters in that way, that they are encountering in an almost ritualistic way the, the spirit of the original author. So it's, a, it's a, a wonderful and powerful experience to notice these differences in, in the brushwork, in the penmanship, uh, as you have done. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. That's very beautifully said. Now, um, how many letters does this volume contain? And I guess um, um, what are some of, uh, do do you see some recurring um, themes that people are talking about or topics, subjects that people are talking about? And uh, do you have a favorite one among these letters that are introduced in the book? Well, there. in the end, we went with 23 letters. Um, you asked earlier if there were any criteria, and I, I guess I didn't really answer that. I would say that what we wanted was a variety of authors writing about a variety of topics. Um, many of the letters that we could have chosen, we eliminated because they're a little too boring or they require too much contextualization, right? One of the things that happens when we write emails or texts today is we don't spell out the details that we know the recipient of our message will understand, right? And it's the same with letters in the pre-modern era. So much is taken for granted. So much is unsaid. You use nicknames. You refer to places only partially. Uh, you don't give dates. You don't give a lot of details. So the the letters that are filled with references that are hard to parse 
we tended to cut. Um, of course, we still had to provide a lot of context for these letters. We have to explain what, who is this person? What is this place? What is this uh, practice that this writer is talking about? Um, but we tried to choose those that required a little less of that contextualization. Um, the, the 23 letters here also are meant to, as you suggested when you introduced the book, um, to show different status groups in early modern Japan. I mean, of course, we're, we're really mostly focusing on elites, but we do have warriors, urban commoners, uh, members of the imperial court, uh, and then also what um, Reiko calls private individuals, meaning um, elites who have left their families, have left the occupation and, and status category of their their natal, you know, birth home and have taken on a new identity as a Buddhist priest or as a scholar or as a tea master. Um, so we've tried to show a little bit of the social mobility that sometimes did exist uh, in the Tokugawa period. Um, as for my favorite letter, I mean, I, I really, I spent so much time with all of these letters. As you can imagine, I really am fond of them uh, in aggregate, but I think the individual letter that I turn to the most is letter 15, uh, which is by, uh, the war, the warrior and tea master, uh, Kobori Enshu. Um, I like that letter for a number of reasons. Um, one is that I'm very interested in Enshu. I have researched him and his life and continue to learn more about him. Um, and in my, my current research, which is about the kind of environmental history and the cultural history of Kyoto during the 16th and 17th centuries, Enshu plays a really important role. Um, Enshu was very influential in tea. He designed gardens. He built um, palaces. Uh, he really was someone who kind of transformed the cultural landscape of early modern Japan. But what I love about this letter is that you don't see any of that. There's no grandstanding in this letter. He's not unlike Ieyasu's letters, which are so dry and bureaucratic, this is a very personal letter where he's saying to a, to a colleague, oh, we have to go and visit this tea house, uh, not to have a tea ceremony, but to buy tea from the Kambayashi uh, tea shop, basically, in Uji. Uh, and since we're going all the way to Uji, uh, we should uh, do it in a really beautiful way. We should board a boat. We should sail down river. Uh, we should sample some tea. We'll have a day out. Uh, and it's so familiar, just as we might write to a friend and, and cook up some exciting plans for the weekend. That's what this incredibly influential political and cultural figure from the 17th century is, is displaying in this letter. So I, 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 I kind of, in the vein of what Masada sensei has claimed, I feel like I'm encountering Kobori Enshu um, when I read this letter. Fascinating. Now, if a student or a learner of Japanese, of the Japanese language of a, or Japanese history want to learn to read these letters, um, what, what are some necessary skills that are required? Pre-modern Japan's textual, scriptural forms are very difficult. And um, that is, of course, you know this very well, but, but some of the listeners might not know that that is because uh, 
the the spoken Japanese language and the written form of classical Chinese that was adopted in early Japan, uh, you know, were not a good fit in terms of grammatical structure. Uh, and also, I guess it goes without saying, originally pronunciation. And so there's this long period of um, adaptation uh, in which... Uh, Japanese elites primarily experiment with different ways of engaging with Chinese. Sometimes they write in classical Chinese, uh, they compose poetry in classical Chinese, and other times they use Chinese characters almost as letters uh, to represent sounds. And the out of those various traditions come the different written forms of Japanese. So students of Japanese language, especially more advanced students uh, and graduate students will already have studied modern Japanese and hopefully will have had the chance to study classical Japanese or bungo, which is the, the very sophisticated elite aristocratic Japanese that came out of the court, the Heian court, and was the language of high culture in some sense in the pre-modern period. But many people didn't write in classical Japanese. They wrote in uh, Sino-Japanese, or what's called kanbun, which is essentially a kind of almost broken form of Chinese written by people who didn't speak Chinese, but who wrote following the rules of Chinese grammar. And kanbun is the real killer because you have to learn to read the characters essentially out of order according to the rules of Japanese grammar, even though they're written in the order of classical Chinese. And then, you know, a lot of these letter writers will mix classical Japanese and kanbun in their letters. So you'll have a sentence that is um, written in the, the, the uh, syllabary, you know, kana, and then it'll have a phrase that's in kanbun that you have to read out of order. And so this combination, um, you know, which is sometimes called diplomatics or komonjo, uh, and I write about it in the brief um, intro to, to these texts, uh, is so esoteric um, that, in, in my opinion, really the best way to learn to, to read and translate works, you know, komonjo works, is after you've studied modern Japanese, after you've studied bungo, and after you've studied kanbun, you get a tutor who can help you to read komonjo. That is the only way that I am aware of that is effective. And I still work with tutors to make sense of all of these very wonderful but hard-to-read documents. Um, there are a lot of tools available. There are um, incredible online tools. There are apps. There are you know, now more and more texts available in translation that allow us to see an English version and see the original like this book is trying to do. Um, so... All of those materials are useful, but it's hard to power through it alone. It really should be done with a partner or with a group collaboratively. Um, that is definitely when I was um, a graduate student at Kyoto University, when I was working on my dissertation at Princeton and was a researcher there, um, our Komonjo you know, classes were always big groups with multiple sensei. Uh, and we struggle on our own with our own documents, but that kind of learning is best done with others, I think. 
Absolutely, I completely agree. Now that um, this uh, study of uh, paleography, the the ancient writing system, is picking up pace in, uh, in, in, in I think North America and Europe as well, we're seeing more and more of these uh, summer schools, or like in our university uh, at the University of Arizona, we have this study group that uh, deals with basic level uh, cursive style. Um, we usually don't tell them about the 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 the, the kanban part or the solo boom part, which is um, probably what he has to to ready. Uh, but yeah, it's so much easier when you have a community to work with instead of you know sitting with your document and a dictionary by yourself for three hours, which is how I did it. Um, when I was getting my MA. But um, I do want to return to this uh, point that we were talking about briefly earlier um, because I've... um, Okay, so this is probably a selfish question. I've been um, struggling with the answers to this question. And... um, so letters from the pre-modern period or from the ancient period, early modern period, whatever period, they're usually letters are usually categorized as manuscripts or historical materials. And they're seldom used directly in history or literature classes. We might uh, encounter translations or uh, commentaries of letters, but like in this case, in this volume, um, a book that provides the original document, the transcription and translation, in my own experience, it's been very rare. And when using these letters as historical materials, when we try to learn about the past, whether um, about the social aspect or from the literary aspect or the cultural aspect, how do you think um, in the sense of historical representation or let's say objectivity, again, how do you think these materials should be um, used properly? So I think Japanese historians actually are incredibly sophisticated and advanced in how they use letters. there usually is initially a, a survey stage where you attempt to identify the author and the recipient, uh, the date if possible, and then all of the details, as I mentioned before, that might not immediately be understandable on the first attempt to read and transcribe the letter. So when you look at um, collections of letters that include analysis and interpretation, they'll even have sections You know where, where they'll say, the, you know, who are the people? What are the places? You know, how do how did we guess at the date? Because what often happens is the month is given, but not the year or something like that. So there's a stage of determining um, the 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 facts of the matter in a sense. But then we always should be suspicious of the claims that are made in the letter um, for a number of reasons. One is that um, people make mistakes and people, you know, uh, sometimes misrepresent what's happening around them. So we all know that if you have a sibling, you might remember things from your own family history completely differently. So it might be an honest mistake, but there also were people who forged letters. There are people who tried to cause chaos in government by sending a letter that claimed to be from one warrior that wasn't really from that warrior. I mean, so there's all kinds of reasons why we have to be skeptical of the claims in a letter. So what historians do is they cross-reference. So, for example, if a letter says that Tokugawa Ieyasu 
um, you know, gave out a distribution of land to a particular vassal. Uh, but that's the only record we have of that distribution of land. Historians might be a little skeptical. They might say that family forged this after Ieyasu's death to use it as evidence that they were the, you know, the rightful recipients of the income from that land, right? That kind of thing happens all the time. But if you can find another letter elsewhere that references the same, you know, transfer to the rights of of the land, if you can cross-reference it, in other words, with other sources, then in general, historians will think this letter is reliable. Um, the, the collections of Ieyasu's letters that I referenced before that have something like 3,700 letters, those are the ones that have been vetted by the top scholars of you know, early modern Japan, Tokugawa Ieyasu. Many, many, many more were rejected and not included. So a lot of the hard work has been done when you're looking at well-known letters. But if you are working through letters in manuscript form that are from a storehouse that no one has ever looked at before, the best thing to do is to work with Japanese historic, you know, Japanese colleagues um, who are experts in the local history or the family history or the domainal history of whatever it is you're looking at. Um, because that cross-referencing is hard to do alone. Uh, again, like learning how to read, uh, you know, Komonjo, this is, this is, should be a collaborative project. Um, and sometimes though, even if we doubt the veracity of the claim in a letter, we can still learn something about the person who wrote it. Um, I mean, a lot of what Hideyoshi wrote in his letters, I think is, it's, uh, ambition. It's aspiration. You know, uh, he wanted to rule the world. And so that tells us reading his letters tells us a lot about his personality. Um, the one other thing I wanted to say is that I think more and more historians of Japan are, are acknowledging that letters are wonderful sources for the study of the past, both for research and for teaching. Um, this small contribution uh, to the materials available in English, um, I hope will be useful and fun for students to, to read. And you can incorporate into classes in all kinds of different ways. But I would also mention Constantine Vaporis's uh, wonderful uh, volume, Voices of Early Modern Japan, which is a, a really huge collection of primary sources from the Tokugawa period. Um, and I just saw just uh, recently, uh, Jingyi, that you were tweeting about um, Tom Conlon's new wonderful book, Samurai and the Warrior Culture of Japan, which is a, a big source book with a huge range of primary sources related to the history of the samurai translated into English. And that volume includes many letters that have never been available in English before. So we now are very lucky to be um, living in a moment when we have access to more and more of these sources in English and hopefully increasingly um, in the original in Japanese. Definitely. I sure hope so. Well, thank you so much for your time and for this absolutely wonderful conversation. Thanks for your brilliant questions and for reading the book, Jingyi. Thank you. I loved the book and I hope uh, many more students of Japanese or anyone who's interested in um, the Japanese history will check out this book. Now for listeners, yes, if you want to read more of these letters in its original or its translation, or if you just want to take a look at how early modern Japanese letters looked like, make sure to check out this new book, 
letters from Japan's 16th and 17th centuries, correspondence of warlords, tea masters, sam priests, and aristocrats, by doctors Morgan Pitalka, Reiko Tanimura, and Takashi Masuda. This is Jane from New Books in Japanese Studies, and I will see you soon. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.